You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist, a hematologist, and a volunteer for LLS. I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us for this episode. Today, we're going to be discussing rare blood cancers, and we're going to focus on mastocytosis in particular. We're going to talk about the clinical presentation that a clinician might see with a patient presenting with mastocytosis. We're going to talk about some of the molecular basis for this disease, new treatments, clinical trials, seeking a second opinion, and improving outcomes. And finally, we're going to talk about support resources. Today, we're going to be joined by Dr. Jason Gottlieb. He is a professor of medicine in the Division of Hematology at the Stanford Cancer Institute and the Stanford University School of Medicine in Palo Alto. Jason, thanks for joining us. And Dr. Miller, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be able to speak to you and our audience about mastocytosis. I'd like to, just to comment a little bit, I've been in practice about 30 years, and truly it is a rare disease. I've seen less than a handful of patients with mastocytosis in all that time. And to be honest, it's always been interesting and exciting and especially because it feels like the science and the understanding of this disease has really improved dramatically. Is that a fair statement? It is a fair statement. I would say that over the last 15 to 20 years, there's been a paradigm shift in the treatments that have now become available, and they're really based on targeted therapy, and that is targeted therapy of what we refer to as the canonical mutation, the, the frequent mutation that we find in these disorders, which is the KIT D816V mutation. This is a receptor tyrosine kinase on the surface of mast cells, which is mutated in about 90 to 95% of patients. And now we have a small molecule inhibitors of KIT. And this has really made a profound difference in improving the quality of life and the organ damage issues and various aspects of disease manifestations that these patients encounter. And I'd be really excited to talk about that because it's really changed what we've done conventionally with historical treatments. Yeah. Let me ask you to sort of review for all of us what a mast cells do, both in health and in disease. Well, in health, these are cells derived from the bone marrow, but they circulate in the blood and enter different organs. And they're really important for being part of the immune system uh, in terms of the arm that deals with allergies, infection, and inflammation. And so mast cells contain various types of substances. They contain, for example, histamines and leukotrienes and prostaglandins and tryptase and various other chemokines and heparin. And these are factors that uh, the mast cells elaborate in response to various aspects of one's health and in disease pathologies that help manage these issues of infection, allergy, and inflammation. And so in the context of when mast cells go rogue, um, that really is due to this uh, mutation kit. And uh, that's when mast cell numbers increase and the manifestations of disease relate to mast cell activation and also in advanced disease, 
infiltration of organs due to these neoplastic mast cells, which has a lot of significant consequences, which lead to poor quality of life and poor outcomes. Along those lines, tell us a little bit more about that mutation. Is that a location on DNA that's just more susceptible to being mutated? And Yeah, I'd love to find out more about what can go wrong at that spot. Yeah, so first of all, I should note that this is not uh, an inherited mutation. There are rare families uh, where there are kit mutations, but they're not kit DA16V. There are other mutations within the kit gene. So this is an acquired mutation. It's in, again, the receptor tyrosine kinase. So it's in exon 17, which sits in the tail or cytoplasmic region of the kit receptor. And this is a receptor that, in normal physiology, the ligand stem cell factor or kit ligand binds to it and activates it and then causes several pathways to be stimulated and causing mast cell to be activated or divide. But it's usually quiet. In contrast, the kit DA16V mutation, which again is found in about 90 to 95% of patients, it causes constitutive signaling of kit. And therefore you have, to some degree, uncontrolled activation of mast cells and also increased proliferation of mast cells, which leads to the problems that we see in systemic mastocytosis or for that matter, cutaneous mast cell disease. So a lot of us have been hearing about C-kit for a long time. How is this mutation different than mutations in C-kit? Yeah, C-kit or kit, they're really the same thing. So I think that with time, we've used the term kit rather than C-kit. And I I think that, uh, so that's one point. The other point is that in terms of diagnosing mast cell disease, it's very important that one uses the right sensitive assay that is one with high sensitivity to detect it. So a lot of us these days use what are referred to as next generation sequencing panels. And when uses that, the sensitivity is about 5%, and that can uh, not infrequently miss the kit d 16 v mutation. We really need to depend on high sensitivity assays such as kit d 16 v allele-specific PCR, or a digital droplet PCR, which has sensitivities down to 1% to make sure that we capture the commutation because it's one of the diagnostic criteria for determining a diagnosis of mast cell disease. So that is really one major clinical pearl that I would want the audience to know is to use the right assay because if one uses the insensitive assay and one says, well, my patient does not have the kit DHCTV mutation, that really can lead down to an incorrect path of not having available to you the appropriate kin inhibitors that are inhibiting kit day 6 v The other point to be made is that historically, imatinib or Glevec has been used against the kit day 6 v mutation, but kit day 6 v is an imatinib-resistant mutation, and therefore it's that much more important to make sure you either find that it's there or not there with the right assay. And if it's there, then we do have now therapies that target kit to and v for both the insulin forms of disease and advanced forms of the disease. How do patients present? As you sort of think about your month in clinic, when you're seeing new patients, what would be the typical presentations? And I say it in plural because it sounds from reading through the literature that there's a variety. Yeah, so this is a disease that clearly is the purview of multidisciplinary um, specialists. So for example, some individuals may come to me, I have my office here in a tertiary medical center with an expertise in mast cell disease, but there are community hematologists and oncologists who may get a referral for patients that have a diagnosis of uh, systemic mastocytosis 
and they're referred to me because this is a, a rare orphan disease that often needs someone who's had some more experience. So patients may, for example, present with a skin rash, and this has historically been referred to as urticaria pigmentosa, and now we refer to it as macular cutaneous mastocytosis. So dermatologists may refer them to me because we know that adults that have skin mast cells, about 80 to 90% of them will have evidence of systemic disease, and they will be referred to me for a workup to look for systemic mast cell disease. Another presentation or referral would be from an allergist immunologist where patients may have recurrent anaphylaxis, and there are multiple types of triggers. The most perhaps infamous trigger is hymenoptera, a yellow jacket or wastings. And if someone has a episode of anaphylaxis to hymenoptera, or for example, other issues such as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents or antibiotics or certain foods, including alcohol, hot or cold temperatures, sometimes infections, sometimes being exposed to sun or having mechanical irritation. These are just some of the triggers that we hear of. So the allergist immunologist may consider getting a serum tryptase level, which is the most useful biomarker to follow the diagnosis and changes on treatment. So that would be another source referral would be dermatology. Another source referral would be the gastroenterologist. Patients may present with diarrhea or they may have abdominal bloating or cramping or even ulcers and their workup may not have been fruitful and they want to refer to us for further vetting of what might be going on. In some cases, they may do an upper lower endoscopy and with biopsy, they may identify clusters or bands of mast cells in the lining of the GI tract and that may require special stains to look for mast cells such as CD117, CD25, and tryptase. And once that diagnosis is made, then they'll come to me for further evaluation of the diagnosis. So I would say that dermatology, allergy, immunology, gastroenterology are just some of the referral patterns that we see coming to the hematologist oncologist like myself. So I have to say, it is interesting looking at sort of the variety of different referrals, depending on how patients present. Is it fair to say that there's subtypes of mastocytosis, or is that an older view of this? No, absolutely. So there are subtypes, and the World Health Organization, or WHO, has defined these subtypes, as well as the new international consensus classification. So there are, first of all, indolent systemic mastocytosis, and by far it's the majority of patients. And although we refer to indolent, or it has the sense that it's lower grade, these are patients that do have evidence of bone marrow mast cells. And having said that, they could have substantial impairment of quality of life with the symptoms of mast cell disease, whether it be recurrent anaphylaxis, flushing, diarrhea, headaches, brain fog, bone pain, ulcers. And so, interestingly, there's no clear association between the burden in mast cells and bone marrow and the symptom burden in patients. I've had patients, for example, with indolent disease with 5% mast cells in the bone marrow, and their symptom burden is terrible. And so, uh, we have to make sure that we don't consider indolent uh, disease kind of something that should be ignored because it's completely the opposite. So indolent patients have elements of bone marrow mast cells and they may also have skin lesions. There's a more distinguished subtype from indolent disease. It used to be a subtype that now we consider it its own category. And this is bone marrow mastocytosis where they have evidence of mast cells in the bone marrow but no skin lesions and it's considered an even more favorable prognosis because of the lack of B findings, which I'll 
talk about or skin lesions. If you go from indolent, there's a transitional or intermediate subtype called smoldering systemic mastocytosis, or SSM. These are patients that have what we call one or more B findings, the B representing higher burn in a disease. And that's where their bone marrow muscle burden is greater than 30%, and they have a tryptase level above 200. And just to give some context, the normal tryptase level is about less than 11.5. Mm -hmm. So in addition to a higher burn in a disease, smoldering patients may sometimes have enlargement of the spleen or liver, hepatomegaly and splenomegaly, and they may sometimes have features of, but not necessarily meeting criteria for an associated hematologic neoplasm, such as a myelodysplastic syndrome or myeloplasic neoplasm. So these are the smoldering patients, and these are individuals that have oftentimes a kit D816V mutation represented in multiple cell lineages beside mast cells. Mm -hmm. They also have intermediate prognosis with a higher rate of transition to advanced disease. Let me ask you a little bit about mast cell lineage because, I mean, you raise an interesting point. The patients where it's seen in the setting of myelodysplasia and it's multi-lineage mutation makes you wonder, but how are mast cells derived? Are they from a pluripotent stem cell? Is this common to see it as part of a multi-lineage form of dysplasia, or is it more likely to be just a single line? Yeah, what we've typically seen, it's a, it's a great question, is that mast cells are derived from hematopoietic stem cells and multipotent hematopoietic progenitors. And what we see in um, earlier disease, indolent disease, is that the kit date 16 v mutation tends to be more restricted to the mast cells. But as one transitions from indolent disease to smoldering or advanced disease, and then you do tend to see multilinear involvement where maybe see in the granulocytes and eosinophils. And so that's where you see kind of this expansion of the mutation within other cell lineages. And that's where you get to the point where one of the subtypes of advanced disease, what we do refer to as systemic mastocytosis with an associated hematologic neoplasm, where the associated disease is almost always myeloid. It can be an MDS, it can be an MPN, a myeloplifter neoplasm, it can be an MDS-MPN overlap, it can be a chronic isthetic leukemia or acute myeloid leukemia. And so when you have a situation where you have SM with an associated myeloid neoplasm, the clinical decision-making is whether one needs to treat the mast cell component first or the associated hematologic neoplasm first based on the clinical presentation. I wanted to ask you also about mast cell leukemia. How do you see that? How often do you see that? How does it present? Yeah, so mast leukemia is one of the forms of advanced SM. So when I think of advanced SM, there are three subtypes. The first one, and I'll get to mast leukemia, the first one is ASM or aggressive systemic mastocytosis. We talked about B findings in the context of smoldering disease. ASM contains one or more so-called C findings, which basically just represents mast cell-mediated organ damage. And so for ASM, C findings can be low blood counts because of infiltration of the bone marrow. It can be liver function abnormalities, not just in a large liver. So it can be, for example, the ASTLT or alkaline phosphates going up, the latter being the most common, with ascites and or portal hypertension. It can be large lytic bone lesions. It can be malabsorption with low albumin and significant weight loss. So those are C findings in the context of ASM. In addition to ASM and SMHN, uh, then we get to mass leukemia, the third subtype of advanced SM. And that is really defined by a histopathologic definition of 20% or more mast cells in a bone marrow aspirin, not the biopsy. And these are patients that historically have shown a really dismal prognosis anywhere from less than six months to about one and a half to two years. And so it's really incumbent that we partner with our 
the metapathologist to make sure that we get the diagnosis right, we identify this specific subtype of SM, and particularly for advanced forms like mass leukemia, that we characterize the mass burden on the, on the bone marrow aspirate because these are patients that clearly are in need of therapy to try to revert their organ damage, improve their quality of life, and try to improve their prognosis. And that's where kid inhibitors come into play. Before we start talking about therapy, I actually want to ask you about second opinion. Saying as a general oncologist, a generalist, this is something that I would see every few years. In general, do you think we community doctors and practitioners should send our patients to an academic center for this disease? I definitely think so. The, the issue with mast cell disease is that, first of all, it's very rare. It's fairly esoteric. This is a mm-hmm. disease that, because of its nondescript symptoms, lurks in the shadows, and it's not uncommon for the patient with mast cell disease to have a long journey before they have a definitive diagnosis and get the proper treatment. So short of the patient that has the presentation of recurrent anaphylaxis, which is kind of the, you know, it's not that uncommon, but it's uncommon enough that you're not going to necessarily depend on that to anchor the thought process of a diagnosis of mast cell disease. So in the absence of the typical rash or anaphylaxis and, you know, maybe flushing, you commonly have patients that have fatigue, some weight loss, nondescript symptoms that don't necessarily tell you outright that this is mast cell disease. So you need to have a high index of clinical suspicion. You need to have the correct laboratory testing, including a serum triptase level, which can be very useful to kind of push you in the right direction. And then if you get that triptase level, which is elevated and or you have other typical symptoms, then that's the point where you need to start thinking about a second opinion in conjunction with working with your multidisciplinary experts, that is the gastroenterologist, the allergist immunologist, and the dermatologist. Got it. I have to say that one of the things I'm really looking forward to in talking with you is to talk about new treatments. So fill us in, if you would, what are some of the, in broad terms, what are some of the targets for therapy? And then let's actually transition and talk about what are some of the agents that you're using now and the ones that you're excited about. Yeah, this is an exciting time. The first thing I would do regarding uh, the discussion of treatments is to talk about or break apart what we do for indolent disease versus more advanced forms of disease. So indolent disease is all about mediator symptoms. It's about the recurrent anaphylaxis. It's about the flushing, the diarrhea, the brain fog, the abdominal pain and bloating. So historically, for those patients, treatment has been anchored to anti-mediator therapies such as anti-H1 antihistamines, anti-H2 antihistamines. So, for example, the Claritin, the Allegra, and Zyrtec, and in some cases, Benadryl. But, of course, we try to use more non-stating antihistamines. In that pyramid of treatment, we also talk about the use of leukotriene receptor antagonists, such as Montelukast. We talk about chromium sodium, which we typically use for individuals to try to mitigate diarrhea with this mechanism of action not entirely clear, but it's thought to be a mast cell stabilizer. And we also are using drugs more recently in it for uh, mitigating anaphylaxis. So all patients with a diagnosis of mast cell disease should be carrying two auto-injectors of epinephrine to mitigate or try to abort episodes of anaphylaxis. That's a given. But there's a new agent called omalizumab that for patients that do have recurrent anaphylaxis, it's an anti-IG antibody that does seem to have usefulness um, in trying to deal with this issue. Also, for patients that have um, anaphylaxis to hymenoptera, or we have venom immunotherapy, and that's used for patients administered by allergist immunologists to try to mitigate future episodes of anaphylaxis. What I would also say 
is that any patient with uh, mast cell disease, particularly those that have a history of mast cell activation and or anaphylaxis, it's important that if they're going for elective procedures or surgery, that we collaborate with their surgeons and our anesthesiologists to make sure that we proactively discuss what are the risks of anaphylaxis or mast cell activation, so a plan is put in place to try to prevent or mitigate those issues with surgery, with procedures, with imaging, because sometimes contrast dye is used, and sometimes patients will have issues with contrast dye, or frankly mm -hmm. with pregnancy. So that is part of the multidisciplinary approach to the patient with either low or indolent forms of the disease or high-grade forms of the disease. For advanced disease, in addition to trying to deal with any mediator symptoms, it's all about trying to improve survival and mitigate organ damage. And in that regard, that's where kid inhibitors have come in. And kid inhibitors are oral. And over the last, now I'd say, five years, we've had two approvals of kid inhibitors, the first one being Mitostorin approved by the FDA and European Medicines Agency in 2017. And more recently, in 2021, the approval of avapridinib. And broadly speaking, these are agents that generally will tolerate, although they, each of them has particular side effects, which we can discuss. So what do they do? Well, first of all, they reduce measures of mass of burden. They can reduce bone marrow mast cells. They can reduce serum tryptase levels. They can reduce splenomegaly, which is a common feature of the disease. They can improve syndemes and quality of life by using objective patient-reported outcome instruments. They can reverse skin lesions, which is both a cosmetic and symptomatic issue. They can improve or normalize organ damage from the mast cell disease. So these are really incredibly exciting drugs that have really transformed the disease and changed the paradigm of treatment from historical treatments such as cladribine or interferon with or without steroids to the use mm -hmm. of these kid inhibitors. I would additionally say that there are some patients that have very kinetically aggressive disease or they have remaining or persistent associated hematologic neoplasm. So we also have to just think about, even if the kid inhibitors are successfully treating the mast cell component, there is the AHN component, which may need to be addressed by AHN-directed treatment, and also to see if there's a role for allergenic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. AHN means what? Oh, AHN refers to that associated hematologic neoplasm, that myeloneoplasm yeah. such as MDS or an MPN. Okay. All right, so those would be the patients well, that you'd consider transplanting. Yeah, I would say that if someone has advanced mast cell disease with an AHN, but the AHN is low-grade and also is responding to the kin inhibitor, which is possible because sometimes the AHN cells carry the commutation, then you don't need to run to transplant. But if they have a intermediate or high-grade AHN, where it's a feeling that these are patients whose prognosis may be cut short because of their AHN, but their mast cell disease is relatively well-controlled, then transplant should be on the table uh, as an option for them. I would also state that with the activity that we've seen in patients with advanced disease with these kin inhibitors, particularly the improvement of symptoms, now these kin inhibitors have moved to the indolent and smoldering setting. So for example, avapridinib is in trials, so-called pioneer trial, which is a, you know, a phase three study looking at the impact of that drug on patient symptoms and quality of life. So that trial has accrued and uh, data analysis is uh, underway. There's another drug, Vesuclastinib, or CGT9486, which is also being evaluated in advanced disease. And like avapridinib, it's a selective kit D816V inhibitor. Uh, so it's not only being looked at in advanced disease, but also um, a trial will be started shortly in indolent disease and smoldering disease 
to see if we can get improvement in quality of life and symptoms as well. I wanted to get a sense from you in terms of the the response rates with these drugs and the depth of response. Some TKIs, we essentially expect the patients will have a complete hematologic remission, a molecular remission, where hopefully some of those patients are cured. In this case with mast cell disease, what response rates do you see? And are some of these patients in a CR and are they durable? Yeah, so it's a great question. Maybe I can use Avaprodinum as an example because I think that the response rates with that drug are really the most impressive. So, for example, if you're looking at the trials, the Explorer Phase One trial with Avaprodinum and the interim analysis of Avaprodinum in the Phase Two setting, the so-called Pathfinder study, you're seeing overall response rates of 75%. And again, this is in talking about the mast cell components. So we're seeing, for example, clearance of bone marrow mast cell aggregates, and we're seeing often reversion of organ damage. We're mm-hmm. seeing often uh, normalization of serum tryptase levels or significant improvement. And so amongst that 75% overall response rate, we're seeing complete remissions with or without recovery of the blood counts because the drug can reduce blood counts in about 30 to 40% of patients. This is really quite startling. And we're also seeing, for example, in the Explorer study, we have a complete molecular remission rate of kit date 16 v of 30%. So this is a new response benchmark for kin inhibitors in that we're getting molecular emissions of kit date 16 v And these responses have been quite durable. Some of them have been lasting a couple of years, and these are patients that are being followed in trials. I have to say, firstly, very exciting that the drugs are there and very exciting the response rates. The kid inhibitors obviously have a lot of activity and are very exciting. What's the flip side of it in terms of short and long-term toxicities for patients? Yeah, that's a great question, Dr. Miller. So if one takes, for example, mitostorin, I would say that the major tolerability issues with that drug are GI issues, so nausea and to a lesser degree vomiting. So we have really stressed that those patients taking mitostorin should have a potent antiemetic before each BID dose to try to mitigate those issues to make sure that they can get their doses in and try to improve or create more durable responses. So for example, the use of dancitron or gonistotron to try to create better tolerance with that drug. With uh, avaprotinum, I would say that the high frequency adverse events are lower grade edema. So we do see periorbital edema and some whole body edema. And with uh, dose reduction, that certainly can be mitigated. I think the other issue that one needs to keep an eye on are, are cognitive changes, again, which tend to be lower grade. And again, dose reduction can mitigate that. And then I think the major issue that uh, one needs to be mindful of with avaprotinib is a potential for intracranial bleeds. So that's a serious adverse event. And through multiple analysis, it seems like the major risk factor for that is a platelet count of less than 50,000 or moderate severe thrombocytopenia. So importantly, during the conduct of the trials, we changed the eligibility criteria such that if patients had a starting platelet count less than 50,000, they would not be eligible for the trials. But if during the course of trials, the platelet count reached that level or lower, we would institute dose holds and dose reduction, a greater platelet count surveillance, um, and also platelet transfusions as needed. And with those mitigation procedures, the rate of intracranial bleeds in the phase two trial was dramatically reduced. And so the current FDA approval of evapritinib does not recommend us use for a platelet count less than 50,000. Okay, thank you. 
Jason, these therapies that are oriented toward KIT and are actionable obviously have a lot of activity and they're very exciting. For patients that are refractory or intolerant, what are some other targets of therapy for them? Yeah, I think the major unmet need in advanced muscle disease is the category SM with an associated hematologic neoplasm. And the reason for that is that I, I mean, I'm never content in terms of where we are. We always need to push the envelope in terms of getting high response rate and durable remissions. But I really think the issue is how do we sequence or combine KIT inhibitors with therapies that are targeting the AHN? So for example, how does one combine a KIT inhibitor, for example, with a hypomethylene agent such as D-cytidine or azacitidine if one needed to treat an associated MDS or MDS-MPN overlap? I think that if one were to combine those two drugs, one may see excessive toxicities with significant decrease in the blood counts or other non-hematologic toxicities. So the issue is how do we then, if we don't combine at the same time, how do we sequence therapy? For example, using a kid inhibitor first, clearing the mast cell component, and then treating or coming in with an AHN target therapy. Or if clinically the AHN is the major prognostic concern, then coming in first with an AHN target therapy, trying to optimize response, and then if needed, coming with a kid inhibitor. So that's, I think, the major challenge moving forward. And, you know, there are not only hypomethylene agents, but drugs that we may add to hypomethylene agents for higher risk AHNs or even acute myeloid leukemia, for example, the BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax, that might be something that treats not only AHN, but the mast cell component. So I, mm-hmm. you know, we talk mm-hmm. about doublets and triplets and other diseases such as myeloma. Yeah, and I, yeah. I do imagine right. a day that we'll be talking about doublets and triplets in advanced mast cell disease, the only issue is doing the trials to see how we foster or create those regimens appropriately so we maximize response and minimize toxicity. I have to say I've been impressed with the trials that you've done, again, given the small patient populations. So kudos to everyone in your field. How do you think you've been able to do that, again, with a small population of patients? Well, I think that, first of all, it does take a village. So this has been an effort over 15 to 20 years that has engaged many national and international uh, mast investigators who have been very hungry in developing these treatments for patients because it is such an unmet need. There's really been poor response rates and poor survival for patients with advanced disease. So number one is the collaboration of uh, mast investigators. I'd say number two, there's been wonderful engagement by advocacy groups on behalf of patients. And, you know, in that regard, I do think it's very much important that patients have an opportunity to reach out for support to these agencies. And one of the major patient advocacy groups is the Mass Cell Disease Society. And just kind of as a shout out to them, their website is tms4acure.org. And they provide wonderful support and resources for patients and their caregivers uh, for this challenging disease. There's another agency, Mass Cell Hope, which is masscellhope.org, which also can provide uh, opportunities for uh, support for these individuals. I would recommend that uh, patients reach out to Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and uh, www.lls.org for research regarding the diagnosis and treatment of mast cell disease. And then I think that one has to give a shout out to patients and their caregivers who are willing to take the time and commitment to be involved in these trials. It's a very large commitment and it's a journey which I hope has been worth it for them. And seeing the results we've seen with kin inhibitors I'm very excited that we've been able to make some impact for them and their families. And then finally, the biopharma, they have taken that leap 
with investing time and resources in rare diseases. And it's been a wonderful journey to work with them to try to get these drugs across the finish line to FDA and EMA approval. And again, congratulations to all of you and really best wishes as you move forward. With that in mind, talking about moving forward, what are some of the things you're most excited about in your field as we look toward the next level we hope of success? I think that I'm excited to start those trials that we're looking at the combination of kid inhibitors and therapy directed toward the agent to really see how we can improve response rates for these patients. So that's number one, because it's such an unmet need. I'd say number two, I think that we need to work with our lab-based scientists to get better molecular characterization of what's going on with these patients. And in that regard, there are technologies available, for example, single-cell genomic sequencing and single-cell RNA sequencing, and if we can annotate the clonal landscape in the cells that are derived from the mast cell disease and those from the HN, I think that can inform why patients progress or why patients do well on certain therapies, how to sequence therapies. So I'm very excited about working with our lab-based colleagues to do translational research. I also think that there are opportunities in bringing various groups together, for example, the multidisciplinary specialist, biopharma, and in that regard, we have worked to create what we call the American Initiative in Mast Cell Diseases, or AIM, which is a pan-American organization with several goals, which include, for example, creating centers of excellence and reference centers to steer patients to have better diagnosis and treatment for mast cell diseases, and also as a venue to bring investigators together, both clinical and lab-based, to basically push the field forward, and also, frankly, to try to get young investigators interested in the disease so we can basically create some momentum in the next few decades. So this is a pan-American organization. We've now had meetings the last few years, and this basically learns the lessons from the European Competence Network on Mastocytosis, or ECNM, which has been doing this for years, and where we typically have presented our research and we expect very strong collaborations with the ECNM to push the field forward over these next few years. You know, as I say, how successful you've been, and hopefully that will continue. This is Dr. Ken Miller, and the first thing I want to do is I'm going to thank Dr. Jason Gottlieb, again, who's a professor of medicine in the Division of Hematology at the Stanford Cancer Institute, and an amazing expert on mastocytosis, which is a rare disease, but an important disease. Jason, thanks so much for being with us. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for the, your time and the opportunity to talk about one of my abiding interests in mast cell disease. And we made so much progress together over all these years. And uh, certainly my aim is to work with the community of mast cell experts and biopharma to keep on making progress for our patients. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this incredibly interesting and informative episode on rare blood cancers, and in particular on systemic mastocytosis. For this program and for a listing of all of our other healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org slash CE. And for our just-released fact sheet on mastocytosis, please visit www.lls.org slash booklets. For any questions or to refer a patient, uh, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support 
to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. And I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. We look forward to having you join us on future episodes. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.